Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 15. If you're there, say, man. Man, we're going to jump around just a little bit here. I don't want to read the whole book of Genesis to you, but we're going to see if you can pick up on the word that keeps being repeated. Genesis 2 and 15. The Bible says that the Lord God took the man and he put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Somebody say keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Well, that didn't last much longer than about a chapter. And we know that they did, in fact, eat of the fruit. And you go over to Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 22. And the Bible says that the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us. To know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep. There it is again. To keep the way of the tree of life. Keep reading in Genesis chapter 4. The Bible says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a, a keeper of sheep. But Cain was tiller of the ground. And we know that in the process of time that Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. If we drop down to verse number 8, the Bible says, Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? I want to preach to a very simple question tonight with the help of the Lord. I know you've been standing for a while. I want to preach to you, What are you keeping? What are you keeping? Why don't you turn to your neighbor tonight and ask them, What are you keeping? And you may be seated in the presence of the Lord tonight. Thank you, Jesus. I, I always enjoy preaching or teaching out of the first few books of the Bible. And I know it's, it's midweek. We're going to keep it in first gear for a few minutes. But I promise we'll crank it up here in a little bit. But I always enjoy um, going through the first few books of the Bible. Because just about anybody and everybody who's had some connection uh, to the church in their life, you've probably at least read the first four books of Genesis. We're coming up on that time of the year where the bread charts start coming back out again. And the read your Bible in a year plan starts coming back out again. How, how many in here has ever started a read your Bible in a year program? Now, I've, I've been a youth pastor long enough to know what's going to happen if I ask the next question. How, how many in your life have ever not quite finished the, the Read Your Bible in a Year program. And other hands, okay. But you don't have to get very far in your Bible to start hearing about the story of Adam and Eve and the rebellion in the garden. And you don't have to get very far to get through the first couple chapters. And I would, I would wager that just about everybody in this building tonight, everybody in this room tonight, has read through at least the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. And there's something very, very powerful that begins to be presented to us, you only have to get to the second chapter before you find this word, keep. It's a very, very interesting word. Now, we read it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 15 that God placed Adam into the garden and his job was to keep it. 
And then we find in Genesis chapter 3 that after Adam has sinned and been kicked out of the garden, that there are some cherubim there, and their job is to keep the way of the tree of life. Both of these words, the first two times that this word keep comes up in your Bible, it's from the Hebrew word shamar. Somebody say shamar. It's a very, very simple word. It, it means to guard something. It means that you are on the lookout for something. You are trying to protect something. Somebody who is in the act of shamar, it's, it's somebody who's a watchman on the wall. They're, they're looking out for something. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that whoever named Chihuahuas got it wrong. Because they should have called Chihuahuas Shamaras. Because a Chihuahua is on guard against anything and everything. I don't care what you are or who you are. It is going to protect itself and its family from you. If you're a mailman, enemy. If you're a doorbell, enemy. If you are a reflection in the glass sliding door, you're an enemy. You ever met anybody that's got a little bit of Chihuahua syndrome in their life? A little touch of Shamara syndrome? They are going to protect. They're on the lookout for something and anything. Somebody who is shamaring, I don't know if you can attach ing to the end of Hebrew words. I, um, I'm not sure if that's proper grammar, but somebody who is shamaring is somebody who's learned the lesson in life that you don't need to let everything into your life. Not everything needs a place in your life. And not everyone needs a seat at your table. Somebody who is set at the post of Shamar is somebody who realizes the value of certain things being kept out of the garden. The Garden of Eden, oh man, it must have been a beautiful place. I can't, I can't even hardly wrap my mind around what it would have been like to live in the garden. The beautiful. I mean, there's, there's, I, I never read in the Bible where Adam ever had a cold or ever had a sinus infection. Bless his, bless his little heart. Uh, there was no sickness in the garden. All of us, we were born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We, we fight sickness. We fight these things. That's, it shapes our worldview. But I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you this, though. I, I've never known what it's, what it's like to, to fight and live with debilitating sickness. I don't know what it's like to wake up in the morning and, and just be in chronic pain every day of my life. I, I, I don't know what that's like. I, I thank God for that. I'll tell you, if you wake up in the morning and your hands work and your feet work... And your mind works and there's breath in your lungs. If you've got nothing else going for you, you've got a reason to thank God. You've got a reason to praise God for his goodness. Because he's good to us. I, I don't know what that's like, but I do know what a sinus infection is like, Bishop. And you're, you know what it's like to fight something. You, I t I'll tell you this. If all that hell was, was eternal night with a sinus infection, it would be enough to make me want to live right. If that's all the hell was, was eternal night trying to breathe with a sinus infection. I think I might just get baptized again just to make sure. Because it's, it's enough to make a guy want to live right. <coughs> but it's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around what it would have been like to, be, to live in the garden. Everything you ever need, there's, there, there's nothing you've got to worry about. And the best part of the garden, the presence of God himself walking in the garden, walking with you. Must have been amazing. But I want, to, I want to let you in on a little secret tonight. And it's, it's really not much of a secret because you could look it up for yourself. You can go home and, and look this up for yourself. But I want you to realize the secret of why the garden was so incredible. Of what made the garden paradise. To, to figure this out, you've got to look into 
to the, the Hebrew a little bit of what the translators, in English we say the Garden of Eden. The original Hebrew is Gan Eden. That, that kind of sounds like Garden of Eden, sounds pretty close. But there's something very particular about this word Gan that, that gets lost a little bit in the English translation. Gan is a very particular kind of garden. In fact, it means something that is a walled garden. It implies a protected space. It's an enclosed garden. If you wanted to be hermeneutically accurate, if you wanted to translate this perfectly, you would say that God created man and placed him inside of a walled garden called Eden. There were barriers. There were walls. And the Bible says that Adam's job in Genesis 2 and 15, when he placed him in the walled garden, was to dress it and to keep it. Now, Ibn Ezra, one of the, the greatest rabbinic commentators of modern history, he, he translates and he interprets this verse to mean this. He says, when it says keep, it means to guard the garden so that no animals enter therein and befoul it. God places Adam in a walled garden and says, Adam, you've got to guard this garden. You've got to protect this garden. Because if you don't protect what I have given you, something is going to get in here and it's going to mess it up. You say, well, where did the serpent come from? I don't know. Ask Adam. Because Adam was the one who was supposed to be protecting the garden. Adam was the one who was supposed to have dominion over the garden. Your Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12 that by one man sin entered into the world. You know why it was so amazing inside of the garden? It was so amazing inside of the garden because there were some things that were being kept out of the garden. You know, we get real confused in our modern culture about the purpose of walls and the purpose of boundaries. You hear people say things like, I could never go to that church because there's too many rules. They just want to keep me from living my life. They just want to keep me from having fun. They want to keep me stuck in tradition. They're, they're keeping you trapped in that church. I want you to realize that the walls that were around the Garden of Eden were not there to keep Adam and Eve inside. There's not one verse in your Bible that alludes to the fact that Adam and Eve were hostages in the garden. But what I do read is that when Adam failed to keep sin out of the garden, that God placed some guardians outside of the garden by the way of cherubim that were to keep Adam out of the garden. The walls aren't there to keep them hostage. It's to keep sin out. We say, well, why would God do that? Why would God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden and keep them out and make sure there are cherubim to keep them out? Very, very simply, you've got to understand what's inside the garden. The presence of the Almighty God is inside of the garden. And the presence of God cannot walk in the garden with sin. He will not walk with sin in the garden. Can't happen. You won't do it. You say, well, well, Jesus sat with sinners. That's true. And I believe very strongly that Jesus will meet you wherever you are. It doesn't matter how far you are from God. It doesn't matter how low you are, how, how far removed, how, how far down in sin you have fallen. God will meet you wherever you are at. He will come and sit with you in the darkest of nights, in the lowest of valleys. But at some point in your life, you've got to make the decision on whether or not you're going to get up and walk out of that valley with God. Because if you are going to walk out of that place with God, you're going to have to leave some things behind. You're going to have to leave some sins behind. You're going to have to make a decision that there are some things I am willing to keep out of my life if I am going to walk with God. 
Do you, do you have do you have a Bible for that preacher? Absolutely. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1. The Bible says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Another translation renders it like this. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And you know Paul's response. God forbid. God forbid, because if you want to walk with God, if you want the presence of God in your life, it's going to take some walls. It's going to take some decisions. It's going to take somebody who's willing to keep the world out of your walk. Now, we preach a lot about keeping the sin out. The, don't break the Ten Commandments. You know, keep, keep the big sin out. But if, I, if I'm being perfectly honest with you tonight, I'm not so much worried about coming to church on any given Sunday and finding out that brother so-and-so who's taught Sunday school for 112 years just ran off, ran off on his wife. That's not exactly what I'm worried about. I'm not, for the most part, I'm not worried about coming to church on a Sunday morning and finding out that one of our young people just killed somebody in cold blood and they're in prison. For the most part. Some of them I pray for a little harder than the others. But for the most part, that's not, that's not what I'm worried about. But what I am worried about, what I do want to make sure that I keep out of my life is all the things that lead to sin. Because sin is always a process. The serpent didn't come up to Eve and say, hey, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, eat the fruit. I don't think that would have been a very fruitful conversation. Pun fully intended. I don't think, I don't think it would have been fruitful for him. But what he did was try to sow confusion. He tried to have a conversation in confusion. And I want to make sure that I'm keeping conversations that are going to sow confusion in my life about truth, about what's in the Bible, about what the Word declares. I want to keep those conversations out of my life. I don't need to entertain conversations with confusion. Because they always lead to deception. And you start not only questioning what the Word says, but you start believing things about the Word that isn't even in the Word. Church family, we've got to study to show ourselves approved. I don't care if they've got a podcast. I don't care if there's a mic pointed at them. I don't care if they've got the largest Instagram presence on the face of the earth. If what they're teaching and what they're preaching is not in the Bible, I'm not sitting at that table. I don't want that conversation in my mind. I don't want it in my ears. I don't want it before me. I've got to guard what's in the garden. I believe that I am in the midst of a group of people tonight who believe in the power of Shamar, who believe, who are convinced that there are some things we've got to keep outside of the garden. I believe that. But then we get to Genesis chapter 4, and we read that Abel is a keeper of the sheep. Now this word, this third time we see the word keep, it's a different Hebrew word. Before it was Shamar, but this time it is Rah. Somebody say Rah. Your pronunciation was perfect. It was beautiful. I think. I have no idea how that word's pronounced, but it sounded good to me. If Shamar is to keep something out, Ra'ah is to keep something close. If Shamar is to look out for something, Ra'ah is to look after something. Because you've got to realize there are some things we've got to keep out, but there are other things still that we've got to keep close. The Bible said that Abel was a keeper of the sheep. I want you to realize that you can be an owner of sheep, but if you are not a keeper of sheep, it won't be very long until you have no sheep to keep. I believe it was Bishop Larry Booker that, uh, in his book, The, the Difference a Line Can Make, he begins to talk about uh, a shepherd who had sheep in a pen, and, and one day he tore down that fence, he tore down that wall, and, and wolves began to tear apart the sheep. Wolves absolutely will kill sheep, period, no questions asked. 
You've got to keep wolves outside of the enclosed area of the sheep. But I want you to know tonight that wolves are not the only thing that kills sheep. you got to keep the wolves out, but you know what else kills sheep? Dehydration kills sheep. Not keeping them close to a water source. Starvation kills sheep. Not keeping them in green pastures. We read in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 23... Read this beautiful, beautiful picture of what it looks like to keep sheep. The Bible says in Psalm 23 and 1 that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Why? Because you die from starvation if you're not in the green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Why? Because you can die from hydration, from dehydration if you're not keeping yourself close to where you can get a drink. Verse 3, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they come from me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And this part is very, very strange to us. You anoint my head with oil. Now, if I came up to one of our young people after service tonight with just a jar of vegetable oil, and I dumped it on their head, it would probably be funny, just not to them. I don't think they, would, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't think it's very funny. That's a weird thing to us. Uh, just pouring, you anoint my head with oil, you pour it on my head. But I want you to know that having oil on the head of a sheep is literally a matter of life or death for that sheep. If that sheep does not have oil anointed on its head, that sheep's not going to make it. Even to this day, shepherds will anoint the heads of sheep with oil. Because there, there are all kinds of, of bugs and parasites that will get up in the nostrils of the sheep. And it will fester and it will drive the sheep absolutely crazy. To the point where the sheep will start bashing its head against rocks or a fence post. Anything it can do to try and get a little bit of relief from that festering that's happening. And you say, well, what a poor dumb sheep over there bashing its head against rocks. Not the brightest of all of God's creations, that one. Because bashing your head against a rock, I hate to tell you sheep, but that's not going to help fix the problem. Poor, poor, dumb sheep. But you know, we're not that different than sheep. We're really not. You get somebody who's got a hurt or a pain in their life and it starts festering in their spirit. And you wake up in the morning and you can't get that memory out of your mind. And you go throughout the day and those past offenses and those abuses and those hurts. It just keeps replaying in your mind over and over again. And, and, and you lay down at night and you have sleepless night after sleepless night because of something that's been festering away in your spirit. And you can't find any relief. You know what people who are struggling with past abuses and with haunting memories, you know what they often turn to? More often than not, they turn to self-harm. Research says that 17% of people at some point in their life will have engaged in self-harm. That's one in six. If this church was filled to capacity tonight, that would be one to two people on every single pew in this entire church who at one point in, in their life turned to self-harm. And the numbers say that 45% of those people, they choose cutting as their method of self-harm. They take that, that razor and they open up a wound. It doesn't heal the wound in their spirit, but it distracts them from the pain for just a little while of what's been festering in their spirit. That bottle cannot heal your broken family, but it can distract you from the pain of it for just a little while. 
That drug cannot heal decades of neglect and decades of abuse. But what it can do is distract you from the pain for just a little while. And we get these things festering our spirit. And more often than not, we turn to addictive behaviors that have no power to heal the wound. But it just distracts us from the pain of it for a little while. And I don't know who I'm preaching to tonight. I don't know if you're in this room or if you're going to be listening to it on a podcast or listening on the internet. But I've come to preach to you under the unction of the Holy Ghost that there is a better way. Can I introduce you tonight to the good shepherd? Can I introduce you tonight to an altar that you can come and kneel down before and you can have the healing balm of Gilead poured out over your life? And when that pours out over your life, that anointing, it doesn't mask the pain. It doesn't distract you for just a little while. But when that anointing and when that oil begins to move in your life, it begins to heal the wound. It begins to heal those hurts and heal those traumas. It's not a distraction. It's a healing process in your life. That bottle can't heal the wound. That bottle, that drug can't heal the wound. It may distract you. But if you want healing for those traumas, if you want healing for those hurts, the only way you're going to find it is at an altar where the anointing and the oil of the Almighty God can be poured out over your life. You say, but, but preacher, I've, I've prayed and I still have problems. You know, it's a lie and a trick of the enemy that he tried to convince us that just because we prayed one time and we still have problems that God is never going to move in our situation. He tries to convince us, you prayed one time and you still have problems. God doesn't care about your hurting. God doesn't care about your wounds. God is not ever going to move in your life because if he was going to, he would have done it already. Jesus tells the parable in Luke chapter 18. He tells the parable of the unjust judge. And in this parable, Luke chapter 18 and verse number 1, the very first thing he says is, This is the point of my parable. He spake a parable to them to this end, that men ought always to pray. Here is the parable he's about to teach. This is the point of it. Keep praying. Keep pushing. Keep asking. Keep bringing your petition before God. And he begins to tell this story of an unjust judge and a woman who has been hurt. She's got a wound in her life. And she comes to the judge and says, will you avenge me of my adversary? I've got something that I'm dealing with and I need you to move in this situation. The judge says, no, not going to do it. She comes back. says, will you avenge me of my adversary? The judge says, no, I'm not going to do it. But after a while, when she kept coming... And she kept asking. The judge finally, even though he did not fear God nor respect man, the judge finally said, you know what? I'm going to move in your favor because you kept on asking. But I want you to realize that the power of that parable is not to teach us that we have to beg God to move in our life. That wasn't the point of the parable. The point of the parable is revealed when Jesus turns around and says, do you hear what the unjust judge says? If even an unjust judge will move in your favor because you kept on asking, how much more will I, the God that created you, the God that loves you, how much more will I wrap my loving arms around you and begin to heal your hurts and begin to bind up your broken heart and begin to pour out anointing and healing in your life if you would just keep on praying? How much more will I move in your life? I want somebody to say this with me. What you keep is what... You get. One more time. What you keep is what you get. You keep on praying, you're going to get an answer. 
You keep on fasting, you're going to get your breakthrough. You keep on being faithful to the house of God, you're going to get your blessing. You keep on giving your tithes and you keep on giving your offering, you're going to get your response. You keep on knocking, the door is going to open. You keep on seeking, you're going to find. You keep asking, you shall receive. I'm convinced tonight that what you keep is what you get. And if you'll just keep bringing it to God, you are going to get your answer. I'm convinced tonight that what you keep is what you get. Preacher, why do you make such a big deal every time you're in the pulpit? Why do you keep preaching repentance? Why do you keep preaching baptism in Jesus' name? Why do you keep, Bishop, preaching that you can receive the Holy Ghost, evidence by speaking other tongues? Why do you keep it? Every time you're in the pulpit, Bishop, why do you keep saying it? Let me tell you why he keeps preaching it. Why do we keep saying it? Because if we keep preaching it, somebody's going to hear it. And if somebody hears it, somebody's going to believe it. And if somebody believes it, somebody's going to receive it. You've got to keep on. Keep inviting them to church. Keep telling them about the love of Jesus. Keep on loving them. Keep on going back. Keep on going back because I promise you, you keep loving people. We will get the revival that is coming. You keep on tipping that waitress good. I know she burnt your steak. I know that. And if you like burnt steak, well, you deserve burnt steak. I know they messed it up. Keep on loving people. I know they've told you no a hundred times to come to church. Keep on inviting the church. Because what you keep is what you get. And you keep building those relationships. What you're going to get is an open door. You're going to get a tender heart. That God begin, can begin moving in situations you thought were cold. God can begin moving in family members you thought were long gone. But you've got to keep loving them. Keep praying for them. Keep bringing them before God. Keep fasting. Because what you keep is what you get. Well, what happens if I refuse to be a keeper? Well, Cain tried that. Cain is tired of Abel's sacrifice being respected and his being rejected. So Cain rises up against his brother and he kills Abel. And you know the story that the Bible says that the blood of Abel, it cried out to God from the ground. And God heard the cry of the blood of Abel. And he comes to Cain and he asks Cain. He says, Cain, where is Abel, thy brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? See, here's the mistake that Cain made. He thought he could just opt out of keeping. Cain thought that one of the options available to him was to simply not be a keeper. This is the challenge he brings to God when God says, Cain, where is Abel, thy brother? Now, let me say this. I don't, I don't believe that God was asking him where Abel was because God needed the information to where Abel was. For the same reason, when God walks into the garden... He, he says, Adam, where are you? I don't think he needed the geographical location of where he was. And God is asking Abel, where is your brother? Not, not so that he could get information, but, the, but so that he could gauge where Cain's heart was. He wanted to give Cain an opportunity to say, you know what, God, I messed up. I, I messed up. I did something wrong because I still believe the promise of the Psalms when it says a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. He wanted to give Cain an opportunity to say, you know what, I failed, I messed up. But this is what he says. He says, am I my brother's keeper? 
I don't have to keep nothing. That's not my responsibility to keep doing anything. But I want you to know tonight that there is no such thing as opting out of keeping. You are always keeping something. Instead of keeping his brother, Cain kept holding on to his bitterness. Instead of looking after his brother, he kept holding on to jealousy. Instead of loving his brother and seeking God with his brother, Cain kept holding on to his hatred. And I'm going to keep saying it and keep saying it because what gets repeated gets remembered. But what you keep is what you get. You can keep being jealous of so-and-so if you want to, but you're going to end up angry and bitter. You can keep feeling sorry for yourself if you want to, but you're going to end up mad at the world for being unfair to you. You can keep rolling your eyes with contempt at the things of God if you want to, but keep it up long enough and you're going to find yourself farther away from God than you ever thought imaginable. I know it's not deep and profound insight tonight, but I thoroughly believe that what you keep is what you get. If you keep running from God, you will end up far from God. You keep ignoring the call of God in your life and you will end up missing your purpose. But I'm thankful that's not the only option available to us. I haven't come to, to end a sermon on a down note or, or discourage anybody. I've come because I believe God is wanting to encourage somebody in this house tonight. But I want you to know what you keep is what you get. And there is a better option of what you can choose to keep. You don't have to keep holding on to that hurt in your life. You don't have to keep holding on to that bitterness you feel to those people that hurt you. You don't have to keep holding on to the idea that God can't use you and God can't move in your family. You don't have to keep holding on to that. There is something else you can keep. We read in Genesis chapter 17, verse number 6. God is speaking with Abraham. And he begins outlining and detailing these beautiful promises. He tells Abraham, he says, I will make you exceeding fruitful. I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God to you and to your children, your seed after thee. So far, that sounds pretty good. Verse number 8, I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Just to recap. Abraham, you can be fruitful. Abraham, you can be blessed. Abraham, you can have a future. And I want you to know tonight that you can be fruitful. You can be blessed. You can have a future. You can have revival. You can have breakthrough. You can have blessings. But Abraham, what, what do I have to do to receive all of those promises? Verse number 9. And God said to Abraham, Thou shalt... Somebody shout it. Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee and their generations. You know what God was telling Abraham? Abraham, what you keep is what you get. You keep living for God... You'll get your blessing. You'll see your life multiply. You keep praying, you'll get that answer. You keep waiting on the Lord, you will get your strength. Abraham, if you will keep my covenant, you will get all of the promises and the blessings and the benefits that come with keeping the covenant. There is another promise that is available. John chapter 14 and verse number 14. 
Jesus says, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. That is an incredible promise. I don't, I don't just want to read that and, and, and skim past that real quick, but I want, I want that to sink in tonight. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Almost sounds like when you lay hands on the sick and proclaim the name of Jesus over them, they shall recover. Anything you ask in my name, I will do it. Well, well, Lord, what do we have to do to get that promise? Go to the very next verse. If you love me, keep my commandments. Because what you keep is what you get. You keep obeying the word of God. You will get the promises of the word. You keep teaching Bible studies. You will see souls saved. You keep telling them that they can be filled with the Holy Ghost. And you'll see people in your work, in your family, in your school, filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. But you're going to have to keep after it. You can't just say it one time. You can't just invite them one time. You're going to have to keep on doing it. You're going to have to keep on loving them. You're going to have to keep on reaching for there is a trick that the devil plays on us. He likes to try and convince us that just because we invited them one time and they said no, that they have no interest in it. You know, there was, there was some studies that was done all the way back in the 1930s. It was a study that was funded by Hollywood of all places and of all people. They wanted to figure out how many times somebody had to see a poster for a movie before they would actually show up and attend that movie. They wanted to know how many times do you have to be walking down the street or walking to your work and see a poster for a production before you're actually motivated to get up and to go to the theater to buy a ticket and to sit through that production. You know what number they came up with? They said it takes no less than seven exposures. No less than seven times before they're willing to do anything. You show it to them once, not interested. You show it to them twice, not interested. Four times, five times, six times. And every single one of those times, the devil likes to get in your ear and says, well, you've invited them four times now, and they keep saying no. You've told them, you've asked them to teach them a Bible study five times now, and they keep saying no. You need to give it up. They're not interested in this. They don't want to hear what you've got to say. They don't want anything to do with God. They don't want anything to do with your church. But I want you to know that if... The world can be persistent enough to keep inviting them until they come. And all they have to offer them is entertainment. All they have to offer them is a little distraction for a little while. All they have to offer them is a momentary joy and momentary pleasure. But they're persistent enough to keep on doing it until they show up. How much more should the church of the living God be willing to say, you know what? I know you've told me six times no to that Bible study. But there's a seventh time coming. And if I keep on asking, I just believe God's going to change your heart. God's going to soften you. And before you know it, you're going to see your family walking in in the back doors you're going to see your co-workers because what you keep is what you get 
You keep inviting them. We're going to see this church fill up. You keep praying for your family. We're going to see revival. You keep on after it. I believe we are going to see every promise that God has spoken over this church. We are going to see it come to pass. And I've simply come to this pulpit tonight to encourage somebody. Keep on loving God. Keep on living for God. Keep on doing what you're doing. Keep on praying. Keep on fasting. I know you haven't seen it yet. I know the breakthrough hasn't come yet. But I promise you, if you'll keep pushing, if you'll keep on pushing you'll keep on praying we will see it come to pass as the music starts to make their way tonight i wonder if there's anybody in the sanctuary that would be willing to stand up to your feet and lift your hands before the lord and make a commitment if you would renew your commitment tonight to the lord you know what god i'm going to keep on being faithful and y'all, I haven't seen my breakthrough yet, but I'm going to keep on being faithful. I haven't seen my answers yet, but I'm going to keep on praying. I'm going to keep pushing until it comes to pass. And I don't know if you are in this room tonight, if there is a wound or there is a problem that you've been fighting in your life. But I want you to know, I don't care how many times that you've prayed and it hasn't happened yet. And I don't care how many times the devil has told you it's never going to happen. I want you to know tonight that you can come and experience the healing balm of Gilead at this altar tonight. Say, well, preacher, I, I, I prayed for God to heal that wound so many times. You keep on praying. You could get your breakthrough tonight. You keep on pushing. You keep on coming to the altar. You could get your healing tonight. Say, well, I've been seeking the Holy Ghost for a long time, preacher. You keep on praying. You keep on seeking. You can receive the Holy Ghost before you leave this sanctuary tonight. Because I believe that what you keep is what you get. I wonder right now if you would reach over and connect with somebody next to you. And you begin to pray that the healing balm of Gilead would flow in their life. If you would pray that God would give them the strength to keep on pushing they keep on loving people i believe in you church family i believe we're going to see revival i believe we're going to see your family come to god but you've got to keep on